Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. And we're live. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. And I've got Mark Bullock with me, the director of rugby for the Glendale Raptors. How's it going, Mark? Hey, it's going well, Aaron. Thanks for having me on on board. Yeah, it's uh, you know great chatting with you about two weeks ago and setting this up. Uh, can't wait to uh, see what Glendale puts out on the field and to see what the things that you guys have done just in the last six months. And uh, yeah, the uh, saw the Mer- when we saw the Merlins, we did I think two match companions for you guys. We because you guys uh, broadcasted. So in the in the guise of the Joe Rogan uh, match companions for UFC when he's not calling the fights, we decided to you know do some commentary of our own, and uh, those tended to be uh, well received. I th- and you know the I was it was amazing to see the difference between what the uh, Merlin's D one side looked like versus the uh, you know the, you put together a schedule of some of the best teams in club rugby. And it was, you know, pretty intense to see. Yeah, we, we were really interested in trying to um, play the best competition that we can just because that helps us to get better. And and uh, hopefully it's it's good for our opponents also. So getting into the interview, let's let's set up your background a little bit. So you played uh, you were. You were an NCAA football player for your freshman year in college at the University of Montana, but then you transferred to Stanford and then picked up rugby. How did that happen? Um, well, I played football at, at Montana, and um, academically, it wasn't quite the challenge that I uh, and anticipated. Um, and in any case, I decided I was going to transfer, and I thought I'd go to UC Davis, UC Berkeley, and I had a friend said, hey, why don't you go to Stanford? Why don't you apply there? So so I did. And um, I got accepted. And and uh, then, of course, once I got accepted, I thought, well, how am I paying for this? Uh, and then I figured out, well, I got accepted. I'll figure it out. So uh, I ended up going to Stanford. I didn't actually play rugby at Stanford. I pl- started playing after I graduated. Um, I became a teacher as a football coach at um uh, Calaveras High School uh, in Northern California, and one of the um, teachers' husband played rugby for uh, Davis City Rugby Club. Uh, his name was Bill Eckern, and he now lives in San Jose, but he uh, said, hey, why don't you come out and play rugby? So I was like, sounds great. What is it? And uh, he explained it, and of course, at that time, uh, it was the time of leather rugby balls and so forth, and I went to a training in uh, Davis, which is about uh, an 80-minute drive from my house, and uh, I enjoyed it. It was quite fun. And then, uh, actually, our first tournament was the Stanford Tenniside Tournament, and I didn't know much about the game other than tackle the person with the ball. Uh, and, of course, I'm short, so he said you would be a scrum half, so I knew I was supposed to pass the ball to number 10, and uh, that was my introduction to the game. And uh, I fell in love with it, and obviously I've been involved since uh, 1975 with rugby. Awesome. So, so when did you stop playing? Uh, did you like? Did you tr- transition to being a player coach, or did you just like become a rugby coach? And then, specifically, what made you become a rugby coach? And then we've also talked about how you. Uh, are also a Canadian level three certified coach. What pushed all of that? Um, well, let's see. So I transferred, or I, I was in Northern California, uh, applied to graduate school at the University of Washington and moved to Seattle. And uh, when I got to Seattle, I was interested in playing rugby. So I, there's no internet. So I looked in the newspaper, Seattle Times, there was a little ad for the Seattle Rugby Club. I called them up, it was uh, in the fall. And um, I said, hey, I, I, I play rugby. I'd like to join a team. Uh, a guy on the other end said, well, he goes, we've got a game this week. And what position do you play? I go, I'm a scrum half. And they're like, great, great. Love to have you come down. 
So they said, we'll meet, we'll have a guy meet you down in the parking lot at um, South Center. He'll be in a brown van. Um, once you meet him there on Saturday at, you know, nine o'clock. So I'm like, okay, we're South Center. So I drove down there. I'm in this big parking lot. It's raining, of course. And this brown van kind of pulls around. And so I get out of my car and I go over and knock on the door and said, hey, are you Ralph Berba? And he's like, yeah. And I said, I'm Mark Bullock. And I hopped in the car. We drove down to Tacoma, played the uh, Tacoma Tsunamis. Um, I played scrum half. And that's how I joined the rugby team in Seattle and got involved. So while I was playing with Seattle, um, I was a high school football coach and a high school basketball coach. I was at Liberty High School at that time in, in the state because I'd stopped my graduate work. And um, so as I was doing that, I thought, well, why don't we have a uh, high school rugby program that leads into and funnels players in the Seattle Rugby Club? At the time, Tony Smith uh, was the 10 for Seattle and I was a 9. And of course, if you know Tony, he likes to talk a lot. So we talked a lot about rugby and decided that we should be involved with uh, high school rugby. So uh, we, I started um, a program at Liberty High School, which I was also the football coach at. And he got involved with uh, Overlake High School and then Redmond High School. So we, we basically started two different programs. And that's how we got involved and how I got involved coaching rugby. It was primarily a, a need or a vision to see we needed high school rugby to, for our view, was to uh, develop players who could then transition into a, a men's rugby program. So that was kind of the, the start of it. And uh, Rick Rafts and I coached at um, Liberty High School, which is still an ongoing program up there and successful. And then in uh, 1990, uh, our football staff, we transferred to Kentwood High School. We previously just won the state football championship. So we went to Kentwood High School. And while at Kentwood High School, we started another program there. We also started the first um, actual high school girls rugby program. So that was kind of the how I got involved with the coaching. Um, the certification, when we first started coaching, this was in 1985-86. Um, we really didn't have any certification program that I was aware of. Uh, we were just close to the Canadian border. We played the Canadian teams, both with Seattle Rugby Club and with our high school teams. So it was just easy and convenient to go to Vancouver and get certified with uh, uh, level one, two, and three Canadian certification. So that was the start of my certification. And actually, the coaches that we had were, um, you know, Bob Dreyer from Australia was one of the lead coaches there. And then uh, Larry Maines was one of the lead coaches. And actually, he ended up staying with us or with Tony um, during that time. So we got a, a really good introduction to some high quality coaches. It was really valuable for us. Awesome. So you've been a coach of multiple sports football, basketball, rugby, of course. And so what kind of athlete that's doesn't start playing rugby right away, uh, best transfers into rugby? Actually, it's an interesting question. I, I thought about that is that, um, across the board, the, the best athlete that transferred in is, is really somebody who's got an open mindset about changing sports. Um, and then, being open, wanting to learn and wanting to get better. Now, if we were to look at from my perspective, because everybody has a different perspective of which athletes should make the best transition, um, I think wrestlers make a good transition. They may not have the hand-eye coordination of passing and catching, but they've got the contact and the physicality and the hand grips and so forth. So they're pretty solid about that. And they understand um, the difficulties in overcoming adversity uh, from being a wrestler because you can't always be on top when you're wrestling. Uh, the next group that I think makes a good transition are um, basketball players and hockey players. Now, why basketball and hockey? It's because both are uh, involved in contact, uh, different kind of contact, but they're involved in contact. 
they both uh, play games that have quick transition from attack to defense. So they have to go from I'm in an attack mode to I'm in a defensive mode. And they both uh, operate under the assumption of trying to get a two-on-one or a one-on-one and then trying to beat their man one-on-one. Those are the essence of playing rugby. Um, those are kind of the key ones that I found uh, on the men's side of the game. On the women's side of the game, uh, what I found was um, gymnastics, girls' gymnastics, those players make a good transition into to rugby, at least from the high school standpoint that we'd coached at. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I knew some, some gymnasts growing up in that were at high levels and it was amazing to see how they transferred over into different sports, whether it, when they stopped, whether it was track or, uh, you know, I guess water polo was one of them. And it was like, huh? It's like you, and then you talk to them it's like, well, I know you don't run that much. He's like, well, you know, I just ran the mile, um, you know, under five, under six minutes. I was like, what? Like way faster, like way fast. And the the girls are like, something about gymnastics just keeps you in crazy shape and they can just do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. Um, so we've, we've talked about like the kinds of athletes that transfer – uh, what is your view of bringing in crossover athletes to like to rugby at a high level? So we're going to be talking about major league rugby uh, later on in the interview and your role there. Uh, and so crossover, what is your view on crossover athletes say pushing the, what it takes to push them all the way to the national team? Cause I look at our national team and you see, um, the two largest groups out there are foreign-born players and crossovers. And a lot of people have different views on crossover athletes. I, myself, am a former football player. And, like, I had no background in rugby. And now, like, as an adult, I'm playing rugby. And I'm not a high-level athlete, so I can't uh, – I believe in the idea, but I also understand that there needs to be an environment to bring someone along, coach them, train them so that they can play professionally and possibly try for the national team. Yeah. Um, we accept all crossover athletes, but your point, um, it, back when I first started playing rugby, uh, kind of a common question of people that I knew would be because they knew I played football. Um, and it would be, well, what do you, what sport do you like best, rugby or football? And, and my response was always, um, they're different sports, and I like them both, and I like them for different reasons. And when you talk about crossover athletes, um, it comes back to you were asking about which athletes make the best transition. And I think the, the, the key factor is, do they have an open mindset psychologically about uh, participating in a new game. And the key factor is they have to be open to the fact that they don't have any knowledge about the game and that they're going to make mistakes and that the mistakes are okay and they can't get frustrated by that. I mean, they may get frustrated, but they have to be open to this new experience and understand that the experience is going to take some time. So in Glendale, we've had uh, a a number of players that had come from um, NFL background, uh, taxi squad kind of players or arena football players. And I'm talking about uh, offensive tackles who were, you know, six foot six and uh, 300 pounds. And they had what I consider an open mindset about playing. And so first they lost weight. Um, they learned the game. It took about a year. Uh, to really get involved, but they adapted. One was a prop and one was a second row, and they both adapted quite well uh, to playing the game. And one was uh, having a look at by the U.S. national team at the time. We did a fairly damaged shoulder from his time at the University of Colorado Boulder um, and ultimately uh, you know, stopped playing because of that. But I think that really the, the crossover athletes, they just have to have an, an open mindset and be willing to put in the work. 
Um, you've obviously, as a coach, coaching staff, you have to upskill them. You've got to spend a lot of time on on what they're doing, and and then, um, you know, the athlete themselves have to make a commitment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's what that's how I I look at it. It's like, how committed is the athlete to become a high level, like rugby athlete versus you know compared to like and what environment they were previously in? Because to an extent, I think we sort of lose in the club sphere, not in what you're about to to launch this next year and what Glendale has established. Because like you said, you've you've brought in high level athletes from other sports and it's worked out uh, fairly well. But in the amateur club sphere for most of, I would say our duration is like, it's hard to stick when someone comes out of an NCAA program and they're used to a high level daily training environment, position coaches and strength training and meetings and breakdown of film and all sorts of that. And then they come into the club sphere and it's, you know, practice two days a week, no film study in some clubs, you know, there's, you don't even have a, there's no playbook. You don't know what you're to an extent. It's really hard to learn when you don't have the same resources available that you once had in the sport you came from. I, I can't, uh, I can't agree more thoroughly on that. A perfect example. This is not even professional high level crossover athletes. This is when we coached high school, Liberty high school in, in Washington state, we'd have athletes that weren't part of our program and we were fairly structured because I come from football background and the athletes would come out of our program. They go to university as an example, one, one young fella, he's now a, a rugby coach, John Johansson. He, he, he went to Washington state and he calls me up and says, coach, he goes, I don't know if I can play here. I go, why not? And he goes, well, we just had the, the start of the season meeting and they spent all their time talking about kegs and where the keg was and not about the game. And that to me is an example of someone coming from a organized program via high school or college, and then moving into a club situation that is not organized or that's coached by the players. And that's a real turnoff. And your point being, you know, someone who's at the university of Colorado in a very structured professional setting of sports activity or they're coming from an NFL uh, situation or some other kind of situation, they come into a club where there's no wave training. There's none of the things that you just alluded to that can be a real turnoff to, to those players. And so part of our job in major league rugby, if we're going to attract those athletes is have uh, again, part of what we're doing is being professional and professional is not just about paying players. It's about, everything that we do. It's how we as an organization uh, operate. And that operation is from stadium to marketing, to coaching, to our production. So uh, we have to have that environment. And those athletes then are going to come in and go, hey, this is a legitimate professional organization and I want to be part of it. I might have pontificated too much there, but. (laughs) So Going going back to how you got in into this, uh, you were high school principal in uh, Northern Colorado uh, when Mayor Dunafin uh, recruited you to start the Glendale program. Um, how did that work? Well, well that's a, it's kind of a long story. It's not just him coming to where I was being principal at at uh, Battlemount High School. It actually started in uh, well, nineteen ninety eight. Uh, we took the U.S. Under-19s to the World Cup in France, in Toulouse. Um, after that, when we came back to the States, we were ready to start our new cycle, 1999. In 1999, one of the athletes who had come to one of our camps was uh, Mike Dunifin's, um stepson. And he got invited to our national camp, which was going to be held in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. Um, so... Apparently, not to my knowledge, I didn't know Mike Dunifin from anybody. His son, his stepson was just a player on our team. But uh, apparently Mike told his son if if he uh, participated with our national camp and so forth and, and really dedicated himself to that, he would get back involved with rugby because Mike had had uh, rugby experience in the British Virgin Islands when he was living down there. So 
Tyler Mintz, who was a player, he uh, made the U.S. team. Mike Dunifin got involved, and because I was coaching up in Denver, um, he got involved with the rugby club that I was coaching at that time. And as he got involved, I then I needed a manager. Um, he was highly organized and um, well spoken, um, and so I asked him to be the manager of the U.S. Under 19. So, uh, in the end of '99, he became the manager of the U.S. Under 19, and was involved with. Um, three world tours that we had and uh, participating in another World Cup down in Chile. And so that was how he and I connected and how we became involved. And part of that involvement at that time with the U.S. Under-19, we really didn't have a lot of sponsorship from, and I wouldn't say support from USA Rugby financially. As an example, in 98, when we were World Cup there, the coaching staff purchased the warm-ups and a V-neck sweater for our players so we looked like a team because there was no funding for that. Part of that no funding was the players that we got had to pay their own way. So one of the things that Mr. Donovan did is he set up a foundation to try to help um, support players who didn't have the funds to participate. So that was his initial involvement with it. Um, when I became a principal, I stopped coaching the U.S. Under 19s, and uh, Mr. Dunifin went his way. And then in 2005, he had, and we had talked about some of this, but he uh, convinced the city of Glendale that to rebrand the city, they needed to have something that was unique and set them apart. So he picked, and he chose rugby because he loves the values of rugby and everything that rugby stands for. And he thought that would be a great niche sport because we weren't going to get uh, an NFL team because there's only the Broncos and all these other teams. So that was kind of a start of it. And uh, when he started, he then contacted me because we had worked together uh, both with the U.S. Under 19s and with the Denver Barbarians. And so that was the connection. So they came up and they said, would you like to build a pro program? So now the interesting thing at the time is I said, well, I go, I have a really good job here. You'd have to pay me. And you'd have to pay me similar to what I'm being paid here. So they left and I thought they'd never come back because it was rugby because rugby is full of inertia. And uh, they actually came back a week later and they, they were like, well, yes, we've, we think we've worked it out that we can be able to pay you and uh, do the rugby. And I said, well, what's the, What's the deal? And their response was, well, we'd like you to be the recreation director, the fire marshal. We'd like you to be the facilities director, projects director, and we'd like you to write grants. Oh, yes. And be the Homeland Security liaison with the state of Colorado. And I said, and I get to do rugby? And they were, yes, you can. And I said, I'm in. Um, <laughs> thinking that that was a pretty big risk because uh, no one had ever done that before. And so uh, in January 2005, uh, I relocated to, to the Denver metro area, and we started to build a rugby stadium and develop a rugby program. That's, I mean, that's, that's a great story. And, it, you know, I'm guessing over time your, your other roles have reduced as, uh, you know, this has grown. Um, <laughs> yes, they have, absolutely, because it was a bit crazy at first. And, I, and it was actually a great challenge, and I love challenges, which was part of the whole deal is uh, starting our rugby program and, and trying to get a – basically building a stadium and a, a park and a recreation center. But, uh, you know, I had to learn about being a fire marshal and fire inspections and, and different kind of things. Some of the things were already part of what you did as a principal uh, with facilities and projects and so forth. But some of the others were, were quite, quite new. But as we've grown, and particularly as we're now in the Major League Rugby, those other uh, assignments have been cleaved off to, to other people in the city. So going back to uh, the Under-19 program, you helped lead that, establish and lead that program for a period of four years. What was, what was that like? Well, the whole thing, it's an interesting deal. Um, I talked about Tony Smith in, uh, when we both started um, school rugby. 
And um, during that time, Tony had been reading uh, rugby magazine, New Zealand rugby magazine, and they had had a, an all-star, kind of an all-star team that they picked from uh, various clubs in New Zealand, and they had come to Vancouver and played, and then they usually go to England and played. And so in reading that, Tony is like, hey, <clears throat> we could do that. We could set up a U.S. development team under 19 uh, based on that model. And so he and I had a, quite a bit of discussions about it and decided that we would go ahead with that. And then we were like, well, you know, we need another coach. We need somebody that's not from the West Coast. and the previous year, uh, Liberty had played in the national championships in Utah, and we had played uh, Xavier High School. And at that time, they had a really young coach named Mike Tolkien. And so I said, hey, why don't we get Mike Tolkien? Um, he's pretty well known on the East Coast, and he's just starting out. And so let's get him involved. And so we basically ended up starting under 19s, and we started as a development team. And we just really went to U.S. Rugby and said, hey, would you give us permission to travel to New Zealand for three weeks and play a series of games? And uh, it took a while, but we got that approved. And then we we went to New Zealand. We played uh, nine games. We 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 won two. Uh, as coaches, we learned a massive amount of of what we needed to do. And that was sort of the start of the under 19 program. Um, and so I was involved with that for um, approximately 10 years, both as uh, manager, coach, director of the program, uh, et cetera. And so uh, that program grew in 1998. Um, and this was 92 when we started, when we traveled to New Zealand. So 91 was when we started the idea about it. In 98, USA Rugby contacted us. And that's when they really, um, what I'd say, officially took over. And then they, uh, wanted us to travel to France to play in a World Cup. And we're like, well, it's in March. We usually go in the summer when our players are out of school because most of our kids were high school players. And uh, U.S. Regular was pretty insistent that we travel and play. So we traveled to France and um, had opportunity to play our first match against Ireland and Brian O'Driscoll. And that was an experience. And uh, we actually played quite well. We got beat. Um, in the second half, game is close to half. Second half, they beat us, but it was a close game uh, and a, a good experience, I think, for our staff and the players. And um, so that was the kind of the the start of all that. It was it was a good adventure, and it was uh, met some good people and a lot of good players. So let's uh, turn a little bit more to uh, Raptors, Merlins, and the Raptors Rugby Academy. Take a look at the literature of the program. You guys start at minis and go up to U20s. Yeah, well, when we started, the, one of the driving forces of starting a rugby program back in 2005 and actually started in 2006 with, with actual teams, um, one of our goals was always to have youth rugby involved and a development pathway, if you will, for youth rugby. And that would have been what we have now is from under six up into the high school ranks. And that's how we started. And we have a, 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 a director of youth rugby, Jenna Anderson, who um, does a great job. She got on board when we first started because of a grant that I wrote uh, to develop youth rugby. And we were able to hire her and she's been fantastic for us. And our program is is pretty comprehensive uh, in the academy of the of the young kids. We run after school programs on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the fall and the spring. In the summer, we run we have a camp about fifteen hundred kids come in from the YMCA, uh, so we run a week long camp. We have a uh, girls high school camp. We've had boys high school camps, week long camps during the summer. Uh, in the winter, we run a flag indoor rugby program. And then in the late spring, we run a contact tri rugby, which is a competition here in Colorado. So it's fairly comprehensive. And one of the key factors for us is that um, our players are um, asked to coach and assist in that. So part of it is our mentoring to give back to the game. And so we have that opportunity to make those connections. Um, and then this year, 
we, we've been looking at actually for quite a long time, an under 20 program. The challenge has always been getting enough players, getting a, a, a mass of players that you can actually compete. And then who do you compete with? And so USA rugby is, uh, directing their attention to kind of under 20 programs where kids who aren't going to college, how do we keep them in the game? And so we now have an opportunity to compete in the collegiate division of, um, in the Colorado, the Rocky mountains area. So we decided we had the, uh, the impetus to, to really get an under 20 program started. So we recruited, uh, obviously in Colorado and nationally and, uh, picked up some players and, and started our program this year and it's far exceeded our expectations. Yeah. You guys have, uh, you guys are currently playing, uh, was it a D one, a B sides in Colorado, right? Yeah. Well, when we started and I'd have to say, it's kind of like when we started, um, we didn't really know what kind of, we recruited players that we knew were pretty good athletes, but we really didn't know what kind of team we'd have. Cause you're starting from scratch. You just don't know. So uh, we felt, and then in uh, conversations with Eric Guy at USA Rugby, that we should play B-side, university B-sides to start with, because that would be a good starting point for us. Uh, and that's what we did. And and in our first game, we realized that, you know, we were potentially pretty good. And actually, that mirrors what happened when we started our men's program. We, and how we got our men's program is we had an, we had ads in the newspapers and uh, said, we're having a tryout on such, such a day. Actually, it was August 4th. And um, we had about 25 players show up. Most all of them had played um, high school rugby or played some college rugby. And that's how we started. But we didn't know how good we'd be at that time. And we just had to play whoever we could play. And we played our first match um, against the Air Force Academy. And we won quite handily. And once again, we're like, oh, we could be pretty good. You know, and so our under 20s kind of mirrored that. Um, and so this spring, um, our schedule will be um, against um, D1A type teams. So we'll we'll be playing um, some teams like St. Mary's and uh, BYU and university colleges around here. So we can uh, be challenged and so forth. So, yeah. All right. So. Well, one of the questions I had to, uh, you know, to ask about this was, um, are, so like, what is the structure of the U20 program? Are players compensated? Or are they paying to attend the academy? And then the other thing, I, I remember reading the press release, is that, uh, most of these players would be enrolling in community and local colleges uh, in, in the Denver area. Um, and then also, what is the practice schedule like for them? Yeah, um, all really good questions. The, the under-20 program, I, <laughs> I would like to be able to compensate them, but no. The um, players actually, like members of our other teams, they, uh, they pay dues. The players um, are – Play, they pay dues. They're just part of our regular kind of rugby program. Um, obviously, they're amateurs. And they train. Uh, right now, they train Monday and Wednesdays in the evenings. Uh, in addition to that, they if they're not working or in class, they train in the morning. So they'll come in and do weight training with the uh, right after the professional team. And so there's a lot of interaction between the professionals and them. And then they will go out. Uh, when the professional team goes out on Mondays to uh, train outside, the under-20s will go out and train with them also. So it's not the full team because, again, it's players who have that time and are not engaged in uh, employment or school. Then um, select players are invited to train with the professional team in the evening. So the professional team trains on Tuesday and Thursday evening. The reason they train in the evening, the professionals, is because we have the uh, match fee players who um, are part-time players, if you will. And so some of our under 20s are training, you know, obviously uh, four days a week. Uh, they all train in the morning. If they don't train in the morning, we have a different weight session for them in the afternoon. So they get a pretty full schedule. And 
your question about school and work, what we are uh, working on is uh, agreements with local universities and community colleges so that as the players come in, they have to either be uh, gainfully employed or they have to be attending school. And so um, that's, in fact, what the players are doing. And we have a coordinator who, who looks after that. So, yeah. Um, let's see. Next question here. Um, and then what we talked a little bit about some of the lessons learned uh, from the fall, but what what are some more lessons learned with the U twenty program? Uh, you know, from the the fall season, and you've talked about some of the changes you'll make for the spring. Well, I think one of the the key things is that your under twenty program is um, is really a development program. It's a pathway, so you have to look in terms of. Uh, developing the athletes and some of that is that you you get some players that have come in and they're might be at the top of their game but you get other players coming in that aren't but if you work with them and you develop them they can be you know quality players and they can fill in so for us we've already had um, three of our players have played professionally and because they played professionally they played as match fee players and so they've actually, some of them have been compensated for um, their playing time. And they would, of course, be at the lower end of the match fee uh, pay schedule. But that's a, a real big opportunity for them. And it's a big uh, push for the athletes because the other ones who see that go, you know what, if I work hard, I can get to this point. So that's, I think, the biggest thing that for us is we have to look at it as a development program. The professional program is a little bit different um, in that they're obviously fully professional and, and their expectations are are slightly different. Got it. Um, so a lot of people looked at your under 20 class uh, as like pretty large, uh, whether you, you look at that and think that's a lot, a lot of players or not. Uh, that was some of the feedback we got. Do you guys intend to recruit just as large a class for next year? Well, I think some of that, that's an interesting question is, um, will we recruit a large class? Um, obviously, we recruited a large class this year because we, A, didn't know how many people would come because it's, you know, they've got to make a decision if they're going to go to college or not, if they're going to play. And the big one is, are you willing to relocate to Colorado? And so those are all big decisions and we didn't know how that would work out. And uh, it's worked out pretty well. Um, but like all things you have, um, you have hiccups and, and, and different things are going on and it, and it's Colorado or our program might not be for everybody. So some athletes will, will move on or they might go back home because they're homesick. Just depends on what their situation is. Um, for recruitment next year, um, I wouldn't say we're going to well, how would I say this? We'll recruit a lot of players. The question is whether or not they'll all choose to come here to play. Um, so in the recruitment of uh, collegiate players um, for other athletic things, you have a big recruitment, but you don't always get all the people that you want. And so we'll recruit a lot of players. Whether or not they all come is another story. And part of it, development is, is – you know, making sure that you have enough players to play and so forth. And that gives us an opportunity to have a second side uh, down the line. Then we have a second side and we can play uh, B-sides or other universities. Nice. Uh, so we've talked a bit about the Raptors Rugby Academy. Uh, I've, I've spoken with Thierry Dupont of Austin and I've spoken with Matt Truville uh, of Houston. Uh, they, it looks like they're going to get their uh, – their academy up within like the next six months. Both are structured a little bit differently. I know the Seattle Saracens had announced a U20 program, but unlike Glendale, there hasn't been, from what I can tell, there hasn't been any movement on uh, feeding that U20 program. And it's structured a little bit differently than yours also, but I haven't seen anything from there. But the real question is... Uh, Sorry to be long-winded. Uh, when do you expect the other Major League Rugby teams to have a fully functional academy like you do now? 
That's a good question. I don't know that I can have expectations for them. Uh, they have to have their own expectations. But uh, Terry and I had conversations uh, a year ago about under 20s and so forth. And at that time, of course, they were affiliated with the Huns. And so they were probably in a better position to to get their under 20s going. And uh, that may still operate, you know, somehow through the Huns to them. Um, but I know that they're highly interested in getting their under 20s going. Uh, conversations with Seattle because I'm a former Seattle rugby club player um, and still have connections there. They uh, are working on their under 20s. The thing there is, of course, they've got kind of the Seattle Saracens and then they've got the Seattle Seawolves. And so it's how they're going to connect the two of those. And I don't know how that's going to operate. Uh, but I know that they're highly interested. And we've had uh, uh, conversations with Flinney up there about uh, under 20. So from our standpoint down the line, what would be ideal is that if all of the major like rugby teams had academy teams and we had the financial ability to play matches on the same days that we actually are playing matches with our professional senior sides. Um, but that's something that's probably further down the line, just because again, uh, our first goal with major league rugby is to make it to the second year and keep our costs down and so forth. So that under 20 model is probably going to be a little bit different. And it may be that the under twenties in those areas, you know, we'll play university sides until we get to a point where, it's financially financially viable for us to have an under 20 competition within major league rugby. Um, but that's a, you know, down the line three or four years, probably. Got it. That sounds awesome. Really. Sounds awesome. We just got to, first we got to get through the professional, get to our second year and the year after that. And then I think you have opportunities to look at uh, how do you structure? And if you have the funding, to structure an under 20 competition, which would be not unlike uh, teams in the premiership. So you've put together a solid team with Dave Williams. Uh, how many players whom saw action with the Merlins will be putting on a Raptors training shirt in January? All of them. Well, that's kind of a smart answer. Um, in the, um, in the fall, we, we basically, the team that was competed as the Merlins competed as the Merlins. They were basically all of the Raptor players that we had in the spring. That's what I, that's, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I sort of, uh, I wouldn't say it was negative, but I, I, I called it lipstick on a pig at the time. Yeah. I, and, and part of that had to do, it didn't have to do with, it had, everything to do with the marketing and that the Raptors were the professional team and that the Merlins were the amateur group of that. And because the Raptors are um, owned by an investment group and they now own the Raptor name, if you will. So we really couldn't compete as the Raptors because that was their entity, not our entity, but we wanted to keep our players actively engaged and playing and competitive in the fall. And so in order to do that, we just, we ended up with the Merlin elite team. So we wanted to separate that from our Merlin D1 team or Merlin D2 team, which are, you know, the quote, the non-Raptor players. But I mean, basically the, the team that competed this fall against uh, Nyack and Old Blue and Ontario was, was the Raptor team. It just they just had the name Merlins. And so all of those players, and I wouldn't say all those players, but the vast majority of those players are gonna will be the Raptor team when we make that announcement. Um and some of those players, you know, will play either up or down depending on where they are, because you've got the people that are kind of in between. And we actually have a lot of um part-time or match fee players that are high quality players, but they've got uh, successful careers where they make more money on a career than they would playing rugby in the United States right now as a professional. See, uh, so when it comes to those guys, do you, do you have any signings that are upcoming or is the roster pretty much set? Um, our roster is 
fairly set. I would say um, it's 90% set. We have uh, a couple of positions that we're looking at filling. And um, some of that is we have one of our players who um, had played with us and injured his shoulder, went back home to um, South Africa. He's been in the States for two years, went back home to have surgery. He actually right now is playing in Japan professionally. Uh, and he's looking to come back to play with us. So we have some players kind of in that realm where we've had discussions with them and it's just whether or not they want to commit to playing with us. Got it. Um, When when will you announce the Raptors for 2018? Um, What we'll do is when, as we get everybody's contracts in, that's when we'll announce them. We don't want to um, announce somebody who's not technically contracted. Um, so our anticipation would be, uh, in December to January. Got it. Cause that's, uh, it was like, uh, we had a, this sort of happened. It was kind of weird. I talked about it on the show, uh, back in August, uh, there was a player's agency that really did a press release. And I guess the, they had the contract but uh, it didn't get finished until, you know, mid-November with New Orleans. So we were mm-hmm. like, found the press release, posted it up. And this is before I, before I had established our relationship with uh, New, or- New Orleans. And it was like I was talking to the GM, Ryan Fitzgerald, and he was like, actually, that didn't happen. Like, we just, like, we just got that contract validated by the league two days ago. Yeah, yeah. So, we'll see. I think part of that is that we we can do a contract offer to the player, say from the club, um, but ultimately the contract is with the league, and so the league has to sign the the contract. And so we want to get all of our ducks in a row before we make any announcements. Awesome. So we, you and I previously talked about how Dave Williams was like the perfect hire when you transitioned from being both director of rugby and head coach to being uh, just director of rugby. What, what made that so? Well, first off, I think the, the big thing is that what people don't know is Dave has been with our organization since 2008. And so he actually um, played scrum half uh, some games with us, but mostly while he was associated with the USA rugby as their strength and conditioning coach, he worked with us as a skills coach. And anytime he wasn't on duty with USA rugby, either with USA rugby 15s or sevens. Um, and he was back in Colorado. He worked with us and has worked with us. And then <clears throat> last year he was involved with the um, previous professional uh, league and he did a tremendous amount of coaching and has done a lot of coaching. I don't think a lot of people understand that, that he's done a lot of coaching with U.S. rugby and skills and so forth. And so um, I had an opportunity to uh, continue to observe him as I have through the years. And, you know, he was ready to be a head coach. He had a lot of responsibility with the Denver Stampede. And obviously they had disbanded. And he had been working with USA Rugby uh, and Mitchell had um, uh, removed him from their uh, organization to get his own people in. And so I think it was a perfect opportunity for Dave to take over and and uh, utilize his skills as a head coach. So he's a young head coach and he, I think, is doing a really great job. I thought he great, did a great job in the fall. Um, and uh, continues to grow as a coach. And in fact, um, his staff or his coaches and I are going to England on Friday to, um, you know, work on our coach development and upskilling with uh, some of the teams there and the English national team. So uh, he's a great addition as a head coach and the players seem to be pretty enthused. So, so we're, we're extremely happy. So, when it comes to the coaching staff, how is that shaping up? A question from the board that we run was uh, Peter Borlase had previously been a part of the Raptors coaching staff. I know he's with the Denver Barbarians. Is he returning for the professional season? 
Um, actually, Pete is looking. Actually, we've recommend Pete's going to uh, work with us, uh, not full time, but he'll um, work with our scrum and so forth. Uh, Kieran Browner, also known as Ted Browner, he's been with the Glendale program uh, since we started. And in fact, um, I coached him even prior to uh, the Glendale program. And he's a competent and very good coach. And um, actually, he's he works with uh, Roundtree from England, who's the English coach or was the English coach. And so Graham Roundtree. And um, so we're pretty pleased with that. But I think Pete is going to be um, we've recommended that he offers services to some of the other clubs. And I believe he's going to do some work with Houston and and perhaps um, I'm not sure who the other club was. Uh, to work with their scrum, <clears throat> because really the key factor is that we all are highly competitive. And if if Pete can add to to our abilities and he can add to the abilities to some of the other clubs, I think that's a benefit for everybody. So Pete's going to be part of it. Um, we also have Luke Gross, who's our uh, director of amateur rugby. Uh, and he, of course, had 12 years professional rugby overseas and uh, plenty of caps for the USA, and he's quite knowledgeable. Under twenties uh, coach Dave Sinat, he uh, in the during this fall he did skill work with our players, so he does some of the skill coaching. So we don't have in in effect our full time staff, if you will, is um, Dave Williams and Karen Browner uh, being the backs and forwards coach. Uh, but then we utilize other coaches for their unique abilities. So Pete Borlas is, you know, a great uh, scrum coach. Uh, Luke Gross is great at lineouts. Uh, Dave Sinod is a great skills coach and has uh, got a real good eye for what athletes are doing. So we utilize as, uh, as much uh, coaching talent as we can. Yeah, I was – I mean, so – it sounds like, because I, I look at this, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm from a football background. Uh, you know, my coaching staff in high school had nine coaches. Like, uh, you know, I had a an offensive line coach for when I played offensive line, and then I had a linebacker coach for when I played linebackers. Like two different skill sets. Um, over time, how do you see like the evolution? of uh of your staff uh more position coaches although i mean it looks like right now you've got like five guys which is actually more than what i thought it was going to be because i figured uh roles were actually delineated like you said luke gross is you know taking over uh your amateur uh program and then dave sinnett is your u20 team u20 guy so i figured they were just not going to be involved, but this makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you, if you think, if you look at the a rugby training session, you don't necessarily need all of those coaches there at all times. And so you have the opportunity to bring somebody in who might be a specialist and they come in on a regular basis to work on the specific skill set that's needed for that particular thing. So it really depends on how you organize. And some of that depends on your resources you also have to worry about people stepping on each other's feet or you have to worry about like often happens in, in you watch some amateur teams who have a number of coaches and there's one coach coaching and the other three coaches are BSing next to each other. So they're shooting the breeze. And what they should be doing, from my experience from coaching football, is they should be coaching the athletes, everything that they're doing. So as the offensive line is walking back, if you're doing football, as they're walking back from the play, their coaches talking to the tackles and guards about what they did on their block or there's somebody talking to tight end etc rugby is not quite set up that way Um, and maybe it shouldn't be set up the way I will say one thing though this does set us apart from some maybe some of the other teams is my experience in high school football coach for 20 years is that the successful teams year in and year out are programs that have a coaching staff that's been together for a lot of years so on the, when I was at Liberty High School, our whole staff basically went to Kentwood High School. So we coached together and we played in the state championship games and playoffs every year. I think part of that was because 
we all worked together. We knew how, what we were doing. Glendale's coaching staff basically has been together. Dave's been here since 2008. Kieran Browner's been here since 2005 when I started or 2000, well, 2006 when we started our program. So our coaches have been here for a long time. And so we have a pretty good operating procedure about how we go about doing things. And I think that helps to, for our success. So you've talked a bit about uh, coach training and development development in our last conversation. And then uh, you've mentioned that you guys are going to England uh, next week. So what is it that Glendale does to stay on at the top? Well, I, I think the for all of the coaches in Major League Rugby, I think one of the things you have to do is you have to be a student of the game. And you have to uh, work at being on top of things that are new that are going on. And in the United States, we tend to be um, we're real spread out. And as a coach, as coaches, we tend to be isolated and separated. So you don't necessarily have people to uh, bounce things off of. Now, there's blogs and so forth to do that. But it's different when you're you know sitting in the room together and you're having a conversation. Um, so I think one of the key things is that you do your research or you have opportunities in this case for um, our staff to go to England and, and get together with uh, some of the clubs that we're involved with there so that we can see what is the newest trends or the things that are going on. And then of course you obviously are going to find uh, different things that people are doing, but um, you know, in terms of say skills and drills, um, but a lot of those things you can make up yourself. What you really want to do is, be on top of the game as it changes so that you're not left behind. So that's really a big part of it. And we encourage our coaches to do that. One of those things is making sure that you're getting certified or you try to get certified at uh, the highest level that you can. Or if we have an opportunity to go to uh, Iran's in New Zealand, you know, take that opportunity if we you know, have the financial resources to do it in the time. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that when I spoke with Matt Truville is that they're doing local as part of their academy program, they're doing a local coach training in ed. Will that be a future part of your academy? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by local coach training. What we do is we, um, for local high school coaches, uh, we invite them in. So when Francois Lowe was here with part of the bath, uh, organization, bath rugby, um, he did a session on the breakdown. Um, and so we invite all the local high school coaches to come in and be part of that. And so they have that opportunity to see again, what's how are the professionals doing it. And so they have that opportunity. We do classroom session, uh, on our attack and how we attack and why it would be, um, fairly simple for the school coaches if they wanted to incorporate that in their program they could so we do classroom session then they come down and watch the professional team practice what we just did and then they meet with uh, dave and kieran and, and have those conversations so that's one aspect that we do a second aspect that we have uh this spring because we'll be practicing the boys high school will be practicing um, our players will be assigned to different high school teams if those teams would like our players to be there and then those players will come in uh, once a week and provide um, some coaching in their area of expertise. That allows us to make those connections with the schools uh, and allows our um, players to have to coach, which makes them have to think about the job that they actually do. So those are some of the things that we're doing. We've also recently had conversations with um, Colorado State University uh, about the possibility of setting up some type of a, uh, an agreement uh, between the two of us um, so that we're working together. And part of that would be, again, uh, working on coordinating our coaching so that um, our professional coaches can provide, um, I guess you could say, coach training, you know, for the, their coaches and players. Well, I think you, like, hit, hit that ball uh, out and, like, definitely got the answer I, w I was looking for so well i wasn't looking to give you an answer I'm just telling you what we're doing well you're it was kind of funny it was like i'm not sure what you're really asking 
And well, if I, if that question was worded wrong, you definitely answered the intent of my question. And I got, I got exactly what I wanted to know, which was yes. <laughs> Great. But that, that's pretty awesome that you guys are uh, pushing resources down to yeah, the local high school coaches. Cause what that does is, you know, it increases, uh, you know, their level of knowledge, but it also increased the, the, uh, the coaching skills that their players will receive so that they're, you know, better developed for either when they go to college or if they walk down to uh, Glendale and uh, enroll in the Academy and try to compete for a spot. Exactly. And I think it makes those connections with uh, the rugby community too, which is an important aspect of, of what we're doing with major league rugby. Let's see. Um, so before pro was a thing, Glendale attempted to be a part of what I think is called was called Napper, which is North American Professional Rugby. Um, that effort didn't meet your guys and your uh, your partners' conditions to launch. Uh, how is MLR different? Because uh, it looks like it's going. Um, actually, that's a great question. One of the things with the the previous um, attempt was. Um, and, and in the previous attempt, you basically, everything that we have kind of set out and kind of a lot of the format of where we are now is, was part of that original uh, conversation and so forth. Um, the biggest difference is you have to make a financial commitment and be willing to commit. And I think in the original attempt, you know, not everybody was willing to put in their dollars. There were a couple of teams, but you need more than you need a critical mass and we didn't have a critical mass. And with the group that we have now, we, we had the teams that have been announced, but in addition to that, we have um, teams that uh, were not, have not been announced that were part of the initial discussions and so forth. But when it really comes down to it, the club or the organization has to make a, physical and financial commitment to the league. And that's a risk. And some people really weren't at that time ready to make that risk. They might be ready to make the risk in 2019. So the teams that are part of the major league rugby for the uh, spring of 2018, all have made a significant financial risk. And that's why it's so important that we keep our expenses under control and that we do the best job we can so that we come back in 2019 with these other teams that want to join. Got it. Um, let's see. As a director of rugby, uh, one of the traditional things is to coach coaches. How do you coach your coaches? Um, well, really, I think uh, coaching coaches first is about observing them uh, as they're coaching. So that could be a practices and can be a game. So you observe uh, what they're doing. And then based on that, um, you have the, um, uh, ability to then meet and have a discussion about that. Now, a discussion really from my viewpoint should be a discussion that is, uh, a questioning discussion. So you really are from my standpoint, I want to ask questions that, uh, other coach then can respond to and some of those questions because they already know the answers you know they just might not have thought about it so as an example you might have a situation where um, you have a group of players who are um, really strong kind of leaders but they're all going in different directions and I had a coach that he recognized that that was happening but then he didn't address it and so for me, then I have the opportunity to ask questions like, well, what did you do? How did you handle that? And so forth. And then that coach has the opportunity to then to respond because they undoubtedly have the answer. Okay. I don't want to give them an answer because they, they already know the answer. They just have to find it. And so that's part of that. Um, I think coaching development, because if they figure it out, then it's their ownership. It's theirs, not mine. If I tell them, oh, you need to do this, that doesn't, you know, that's not, that's not what players need to know either. You know, it's like you go catch the ball. Well, the player knows to catch the ball. 
you know, the question is, well, what are you doing with your eyes? Where are your hands? You know, those kind of things. Yeah. Then uh, was it? we had, there was a question about the Glendale uh, online that was pushed back. Uh, when, when will that be rescheduled to? And does that, will that canvas just for uh, more talent to come into your amateur program or also to feed into the Raptors? What was the first part of the question? So the, the, the com, you guys had a com- advertising. You're talking about the combine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, actually we had scheduled the combine and uh, we didn't have a, you know, quite honest, we didn't have a really good response. And I think we probably didn't have a good response because we already have our team, you know, we're in a different situation than, uh, Houston or Austin or um, Utah in particular, probably New Orleans, is that, you know, Houston is starting from scratch. Utah is starting from scratch for the most part. Austin Elite is not really starting from scratch, but they're sort of starting from scratch because they broke apart from the Huns. So I think their needs are probably different than our needs. Um, We already have a, a, a squad set out. And so some of that would be, um, you know, if we're bringing players in, we already know who we have. What do we, if we find players or find people that we want to, um, bring in, we would probably, we would probably direct them to our D one team. Um, because it's not likely someone's going to come in and just, you're going to go, wow, you're going to move right into the pro team. You know, particularly like you were saying earlier, so let's say it's a crossover athlete comes in and you go, wow, this is a great athlete, but they don't know a lot about rugby. So they've got to get their rugby skills somewhere. And then for us, that'd probably be their D1 team where they can upskill, depending on their age, could be your um, academy team. Uh, and then they move in and they prove that they can play on the professional team. Got it. All right. Um, let's see here. Um, I think that about wraps it up for me, Mark. Thank you for your time today. And, uh, you know, hope to talk to you again, uh, especially as the season uh, kicks off in April. And, uh, you know, can't wait to see, uh, talk to uh, Dave eventually and then some of your players uh, going forward. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate uh, taking the time to talk with you and you uh, having that interest in Major League Rugby because we all are excited about the direction we're going and and we want to see uh, – See us come back in 2019. Definitely. I, I, I can't. I really am very hopeful with all the stuff that I've uh, been shown by the league and all the stuff that uh, all of the teams have uh, shown to, you know, just what's about to happen. And it's very it's, – it's something special that I just really want it to – I want it to stick because if it sticks uh, – Everyone talks about how we're the sleeping dragon or the sleeping giant. Mm-hmm. If it sticks, then there's, you know, then there's something to, uh, to move towards. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, that wraps it up for this episode of Earful of Dirt Lineouts. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.